Terence Davies is one of Britain's most original filmmakers. I met with Terence at Fact in his home city of Liverpool for a special screening and Q&A of his latest film, Of Time and the City, an autobiographical documentary of the city, narrated by Terence himself. I began by asking Terence if he felt nervous about doing a Q&A in front of a home audience. Well, I'm always nervous, wherever the Q&As are. I just am, um, because you never know what... Um, it's going to be like it could be a disaster, for all you know. Um, it never has been so far. Um, but it's, I'm always worried. I, I always get nervous. I just can't help it. I can't eat. Um, uh, I, I can't sleep the night before. Wherever it is, you are asking people to like it and respond to it. That's what, you, that's what everyone does when they write or sculpt or whatever. That's what they're doing. Um, it had a good response when it was had the world premiere a few weeks ago at the Philharmonic Hall. Um, but no, I'm just always nervous. It, it's like, I mean, I never um, acted professionally, but I, I did 12 years as an amateur, and I was always nervous, even if there were only a tiny amount of people in the, in the theatre. I was just always, I'm just nervous. I am, by nature, neurotic. <laughs> what was the process behind making of Time in the City because it wasn't necessarily your, your standard procedure was it it was a it, it was a commission but you had to put in a, a kind of bid would that be the right word before you got it well it was competitive uh, I mean Digital Departures had set up this thing of making three films in Liverpool for 250,000 pounds each but it was competitive um, and 157 people applied. So I, thought, I said to Sol and Roy, the producers, I said, I don't think we'll get it, because I've never made a documentary before. So why should they give me money? You know, when th there are other people out there who may have made um, documentaries that, uh, that were, you know, th they'd made their career as, as documentary filmmakers. You know, um, and I was, I was very surprised to have got it, I'll be honest with you. Um, it was a long, rigorous process. Um, I've only found out afterwards we were the only people who wanted to make a documentary. Um, but I didn't know that, obviously, until afterwards. Um, but no, it was, a, it, was a, it was competitive, yes. And I honestly did not think we'd get it, truly. It's not just a straightforward documentary. How did you begin that kind of, not storyboarding, putting all that together? Well, I had always said it was not going to be a documentary in the sense that, you know, this happened in 1945, this happened in 1952, this happened in 1971, because I'm just not interested in that. I'm, I've never been interested in that. Um, I said it was going to be a subjective personal essay and exploring the Liverpool that I knew from 45 when I was born to 73 when I left. Um, and, and that Liverpool is gone. It's just gone. It's disappeared. It's a... It's, um, a land of the mind now, and a city of imagination. It's just not there anymore. And I did not want it to be, oh, well, in 1958, this happened. That's not interesting. Um, and I, want, I, I said when we were cutting it, after choosing the material, that we should cut it like fiction. Because I'm interested in about the nature of time and memory as well. Those things will always fascinate me. Um, and I wanted it to be about those things too. You know, because when, you th when anyone, anyone thinks of what's happened in their past. It's never linear, it's always cyclical, and it's always emotional. One emotional trigger triggers something else, but it's, it's never in a straight line, it's cyclical, it's cyclical or it's completely out of order. Um, that's why memory is so powerful, because we only remember the intense moment um, uh, and nothing beyond. 
as if there was no before and no after. Um, and that's what I was interested in doing. And I said all along, that's what I'm doing. Uh, because my template was Humphrey Jennings' Listen to Britain, which was made in 1941, when this country was about to be invaded, you know, and people thought we were going to be invaded in 1941-42. And um, there's a secret, it's only 19 minutes long, but it's the first great um, po poetic essay. Um, and there's just a sequence around the um, National Gallery with Dan Hess playing Mozart and then shots of these people standing in the sun. And it breaks your heart because you can, they, they may be thinking, well, in a few weeks' time, we won't be free anymore. Uh, but that's, this is never said. Now, no, there's no narration, you just see Britain. And that was wonderful. And I wanted to do the same, but on a much more modest scale, for Liverpool. So what, what did it actually feel like growing up? When you were going through the archive footage to use, I wondered what, what your emotions were when you were choosing them, or were you specifically looking for ones that, that helped go with your narration? It was much more vague than that. Um, I had things that I wanted to see, which Jim Anderson, the, the archivist, got for me. But because these things start to come in, they prick other memories. And so it, it began to um, grow organically from that, one memory um, pricking another. And that's, that's what I'd always wanted. So the actual architecture of the piece, although it remained the same, changed in, in detail. Um, and I was writing the narration as we were cutting it, um, because I wanted it to be uh, uh, as fresh and, uh, as getting the archive material. I mean, sometimes I'd go back in the evening to the flat I was renting and write screeds of stuff. And then you come in the next day and you think, well, we only need four sentences, because, you know, the images say it. I don't need all this other stuff, you know. Um, and that was exciting because, you know, you could tell instantaneously when it's right and when it's, when it's wrong. Other, some other times it was, oh, we don't need any sound here at all. I just want to use these images with this music, nothing else. And that, that's, that, but that has to be instinctive. It, it, it's, you have a, subliminally or consciously, you have a technique, everyone has, but the images have got to be organic and felt. That's how you have to respond to them. When you were going back through your life and you were and you were sort of picking clips and doing the narration, were there any points where you 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 came you you reflected and you reminisced about some quite difficult times as well as the ones that you wanted to reflect about the city? Mm, yes, I mean at one point, um, one of the early cuts, the um, two of the financiers said, "Could you make it more personal?" And I said, "Yes, but." That's a very dangerous game. It can, if it's too personal, it can look unseemly, and people get embarrassed by that. And I d I'm not going to do that. So I tell you right now, I'm not going to do that. Um, they said, no, fair enough. Well, but would you make it more personal? So I did. Um, and but I, that that opened up a lot of psychological wounds. You know, particularly being gay. I mean, it was a criminal offence in this country until 1967. I was from a large working-class Catholic background, and it was something that was never even discussed, let alone tolerated. Um, and that was that brought back a lot of very unpleasant memories, um, opened up a lot of wounds, um, because I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to get put into prison. I'm not. And also, I was a practicing Catholic then, and I thought, well, if I'm really, if I'm really good, you know, if I pray and do all the things that you're supposed to do, God will make me well. 
and nothing happened. No sucker came, nothing. That was awful. I couldn't go through those years again. They were absolute misery. So it, it opened up things like that. But odd things um, that you'd forgotten or half remembered. Um, like my, my mother was the great love of my life. And I remember uh, when 55, my first sister got married. And uh, she and her husband moved into the two top rooms because those days you couldn't afford a flat of your own. And um, we all listened to the Grand National. Everyone listened to the Grand National then. And my mother had a little bet on one five shillings. And the, that just, that little tiny thing, you know, just breaks your heart because I can remember getting five shillings and wanting to buy something for us. It was only five shillings. Um, that was upsetting. There's a couple of things that, um, that, 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 that sort of run throughout the film. There is the, the level of Catholicism in the film. There's sort of um, this splendor uh, and almost sometimes gaudiness, and this is sort of superstitious, you know, all the, all the, the, the sacred heart type pictures that are all over the houses and whatever like that. That one's, uh, it features quite a lot in your film. Do you think that is something that you, you that, is that a personal thing that you put in, or is that because on top of that, that's something that you th think is quite a significant part of Liverpool? Not really significant part of Liverpool because there was a, uh, there was a small Catholic enclave here. It wasn't the dominant faith. No, why it's in is because it did me personally so much damage. You know, um, you can't be pure in thought, word, indeed, no one can, not even saints. And consequently, you always fail. You know, consequently, you always have to strive for something that's unattainable. And that, you know, you're told that you have this thing called a soul, which, you know, can be damaged and um, and God will know. That's chilling, really. That uh, It was in because it was so damaging. Um, and also, when I realised that it was a lie, which is when I was 22, I'd been practising for 17 years, that's a long time. And when that's taken from you, there's a huge hole inside it. What do you, what do you fill it with? Um, I filled it with, you know, the things that I love in art um, and tried to put it, my whole life into my work. But there's still a part of you that will always feel guilty. There's always part of you, like your conscience, I examine my conscience every day. Um, and it's, it, it's a tyranny, really, you know, because there comes a point when you think, well, I'm not a wicked person. I don't hurt anybody. You know, I've got my frailties and vices as much as anybody else, but I don't actually do anyone, anybody any harm. But I can't accept that you think, oh, well, you know, I must try, I must strive not to do that. Even when it's um, to your own detriment, you know, um, if something is to your detriment, you should be able to say, I'm sorry, I can't accept this. But you say that and you immediately think, I've done something wrong. I, I've, I've, I've somehow fallen into the sin of pride because I put myself first. Another moment that uh, sticks in my mind quite, quite significantly, and a lot of reviews have picked up on this, and a lot of in, uh, I think a lot of interviews have picked up on this, uh, which was you're going, you're, you're talking about Liverpool, and there's a fleeting reference to the Beatles, which uh, which you push aside and basically just say, I, don't, I you know I didn't care for the the whatever happened in the Cavern Club because I had Marla. Well, I just didn't like them, the Beatles. I thought they were boring. I thought their music was puerile, and I still do. We didn't use anything in the film because they charge 
vast amounts of money. You cannot use Beatles stuff without them charging enormous, obscene amounts of money. Um, our f full budget for all the music was 35,000. That's all. We had no more money for the music than that. So that was the, the other reason. But I'd, I had discovered, I began to listen to classical music. I discovered Sibelius and Shostakovich and Bruckner. I, I loved them. This was a, a completely new world for me. I'd never heard them before. I'd never heard this kind of music before because I grew up in, with popular music. Um, but up until 1956, there was people like Cole Porter was still alive and still writing. And I was in at the very end of that American songbook tradition, which stretched back to the, the late 1890s. And I just think that though that particular songbook um, is poetry, and or, though it was poetry for ordinary people, you know, you l look at a lyric, say, like, um, in the still of the night. The bits look pretty feeble against that, you know. You use a lot of music in your 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 films. I mean, um, in Distant Voices, Still Lives, there's all, they're always singing. Um, you know, they're always in the the, you know, the pub songs and all that kind of stuff. And and, the, and I think and the and the notes in the in the um, DVD, someone has written it, it could almost be a musical. But I mean, they've got such fantastic voices. So there's this love of song and there's this love of people getting together and singing. And that m must have been you know a part of your growing up. It was a huge part. I mean, that's what people did. You know, I'm, half of my family had very good voices. My mother especially, she had a, a lovely, like, mellifluous voice. And the, the difference those days was that if people could sing, they sang for pleasure. They didn't think, oh, I've got to be on a TV program and become a, a pop star. They didn't. They didn't. There was nothing like that for ordinary people then. Um, I'm not sure whether that's a good thing now, um, why people can't just sing and enjoy it. As they, as they did when I growing up, without having some sort of wanting some kind of recompense either in fame or money, but you know everybody had their songs, and then everyone knew what a group song was, you know, and that's what the people sang. They just did, you know. There were no jukeboxes uh, around, and there certainly weren't any in pubs at all, you know. And then you came back to the house, you had a bit of a dance, and you had, an, uh, had another sing song, and then you went home. That was common. It wasn't unusual. It was absolutely common. You write most of your own screenplays. You've written every one. You're the sole writer, am I, am I correct? I've written every one of them. Why do you not uh, work with anyone else? Is it something that you feel that for your films, because a lot of them are about your childhood or themes on, on, that relate to your childhood, like Neon Bible, do you, do you never want to collaborate? Or, or you just because you have, you have such... I was going to say fixed ideas is not perhaps the right way of putting it, but how, how do you approach it when you're writing by yourself? Well, it comes from deep within me. I, I see every shot. I know what's on the soundtrack. I know what the cadences are. Um, I don't think I could collaborate with anyone. I just don't think it's in my nature, not because I'm grand, but I just couldn't do it. Um, and when I, I don't get a vast number of scripts, but they all talk. I'm, I don't know what to do with talk. I just don't know where you put the camera. I don't know what is interesting about that at all. Um, and a lot of it is television, you know, and I'm, I'm just not interested in watching people talk. If they're going to talk, then it's got to have, it's, the talk's got to be brilliant, like All About Eve. It's got to be of that stature. Then I don't mind, but who writes, who writes screenplays of that stature? 
no one, no one that I know of anyway. Um, so if, if I'm adapting a book, then I know, I feel that I know what I want to do. And that has to be, you know, instinctive for me. Obviously, I, I show other people, the people who are funding it, uh, and take their notes. And where the notes are applicable, I incorporate them. Where they aren't, I say, I don't think that's applicable. Um, but I just don't think I'm, by nature, someone who could collaborate with. I just, it's just not in my nature. Like, I'm not a team person. I'm just not. Um, I'm not competitive either. If there's any kind of competition, I immediately want to withdraw. I just think, I, I think it's reductive. Because inevitably, it, it, this is better than that. Well, you can't say that. The only time you can say that is if it's measurable. If someone runs faster than anybody else in the world, then they are the fastest person in the world. But you listen to a piece of music and ask three people what they think of it. Watch a film, ask three people what they think of it. Some will say, I think it's absolutely marvellous. Some will say, it's absolutely awful, it was tedious. The third person will say, well, it was sort of all right. You know, it's, it's completely subjective, you know, um, and that's what I don't like. That, that's why I wanted to withdraw from this as soon as I heard it was competitive, because I just don't like the idea. I, I think it's intrinsically reductive, and I don't like it. That was the only way we could do it, so I said, you know, fair enough, but I, I didn't like that aspect of it. Can I ask you about um, when you're adapting a book? You, you adapted quite a few things in uh, Edith Wharton and Virginia Woolf, I think, for radio, is that right? How does that, uh, in terms of you writing, you're obviously going from someone else's work, how does, how does that work for you? Well, the thing that you have to rem remember all the time is the tone of voice. Great writers, and Edith Wharton and Virginia Woolf are, they have a tone, and you can't not capture that tone. If you, don't get the tone, then forget it, you know, because all you're doing is just mucking around with material that, that is just far too good to be mucked around with. But you have to, it's like if you were acting in Chekhov, you can't use any modern gestures because it's not modern. It, it is the late 19th century and the certain gestures which are modern. And you, you just can't use them. You know, you can't slouch around as if you're in jeans because of the underwear that they wore. They actually, it makes you stand straight, for instance, especially if you're a woman. Things like that, you have to understand the tone and keep the tone whilst trying to make it cinematic. You know, and where the Edith Wharton was concerned, because that was a film rather than Virginia Woolf, which was um, radio, um, the Virginia Woolf, uh, the Edith Wharton Society in America saw it and they know her work backwards. I mean, they literally know every book backwards. And they said, we couldn't tell where you had written dialogue and where she had. And that was a great compliment, because I think I've got a very imitative ear. Uh, but you have to keep the tone always. As well as the story, you're trying to tell the story cinematically. And there are things in, in Edith Wharton that just don't work. You know, at the end of the book, Lily Bart meets this woman from Brooklyn uh, that she gave money to many years before and there's this embarrassing sequence where you know she goes back to this woman's house in Brooklyn and you know she's poor but honest and she's got this poor but honest baby and she is married to this poor but honest rail woman and they live in poor but honest Brooklyn and it's 
completely false. She has no idea how ordinary people were, lived because she came from a very privileged, wealthy background, and that had to go because it was just silly. Um, things like that, you have to make that, those decisions, you know. Um, but you have to honour the tone of the book and, and the spirit of the book, which is not the same, they're different, but you have to honour them. I'm quite interested in how you got into filmmaking because for about 10 years you were a clerk in a shipping office, is that right? So you were doing that for a while? Is, is, am, am I... I, I, I was um, in, a, in a shipping office for one year oh. and then 11 in various um, places for, as, as a bookkeeper. I hated it, it was awful. <laughs> Why did you do it for money? I had to, well, I had to earn a living, you know. I had to earn a living. What was the sense of urgency that made you uh, get into doing something that was creative and dramatic and, um, you know, eventually cinematic? Well, I, I started to write in the evening and I joined the Liverpool Writers Club, which used to meet in Slater Street, just round the corner, every Tuesday, um, and wrote all this terrible stuff, which I thought was absolutely wonderful, because rubbish, it was just juvenilia. I was still trying to find my voice. And I went to two acting classes on a Thursday and Friday in... Um, Man Street. It was a, um, it was a night school then. I used to go on a Thursday and Friday night. That's what kept me sane. And I originally wanted to act and write. And um, I used to go down to London to try and get into a drama school there. And I, I hated London. I just absolutely hated it. So I gave these terrible auditions. So of course, I didn't get in um, until I was so desperate. I, I, I used to buy the stage. I think it used to come out on a Thursday. And I opened it, and in the bottom right-hand corner was Coventry Drama School. I applied and I got in, and I got you've got to grant those days. Um, it was a terrible drama school. It's now part of the Lanchester University. But it got me out of bookkeeping, because I really felt as though I was going to die. And while I was there in the first year, I'd written the first part of the trilogy. I'd sent it all over England, and everyone turned it down. So I thought, well, it can't be any good. And I used to come home once every three weeks, because that's all I could afford to because I really missed home, I really missed my mother. And I went home one Friday, and there was a programme on television called Cinema Now, and it had a, a piece on the BFI production board. So off I sent my script, and six months later, Mamun Hassan, who was running it, um, said, come down to London. I went down to London, to Lower Marsh, which was in Waterloo. He said, you have eight and a half thousand pounds, not a penny more, you will direct. And I said, I've never directed before. So now's your chance. That's how it happened. And it was a baptism by fire, because apart from the cameraman, uh, the crew hated it and told me so every single day for three weeks. It was awful. It was just awful. It was, and after it was finished, I just thought, that's it. I'm never going to do this again. It's just too unpleasant. So what made you carry on then? Well, I had to go back to uh, drama school, because those days, if you didn't finish your course, you had to repay the hold of the grant, and I, I couldn't afford to do that. Um, and um, we got this... not very good cut. And I went back to the BFI, um, who by this time, you know, Mamun had left and Peter Sainsbury had taken over. So I went back to Peter Sainsbury and said, you know, you've wasted eight and a half thousand pounds, I'm very sorry. He said, well, there is a good film in there. I said, well, I don't know where it is. He said, well, I'll get another editor for you. So he got me this lovely lady called Sarah Ellis and she, we recut it together. And it's still too long, 46 minutes, but at least it was a lot better than it was. Um, and then um, my time at drums got ended and I had to go back to Liverpool for a year. 
um, because I, I couldn't get into... I applied for film school and I didn't get in. I applied a second time and got in, um, thank goodness. Um, and that's when I was able to make the rest of um, the trilogy. Well, it's second part there, but it, it, it was a close-run thing. I, I if I hadn't got in to the um, film school, I really don't know what I, what, what I would have done. How did you find the filmmaking process from then on? Did it get any easier or did you put even more pressure on yourself to, to make film? It, I mean, it, it got easier in the sense that people who worked on the crew weren't horrible, you know, weren't horrible to me and shouting at me and telling me how awful the script was. That, that only happened on that film. Um, but it's always difficult because, you know, I, I was, it was still my apprentice work, I mean, which in the end took 10 years to make. I was trying to find a voice eventually. I think with Death and Transfiguration, I found that voice. Um, but that's always a worry because, you know, you're trying to find how you can say something in the most cinematic way. You've got very little money. Um, uh, uh, part three of the trilogy, I could only afford to pay people £10 a day plus expenses because I had no other money. Um, and they were very kind enough to do it. Um, but the the problem of money is, is always a problem um, unless you make blockbusters, which I don't. Um, and then there's always a point um, when you're getting towards the final cuts where you always disagree with the people who have put money in you. Just They want you to make it especially if they want you to make it obvious, I just refuse. I, I won't, I'd sooner people were confused rather than spoon-fed with obviousness. I'd just say, no, I, I won't do that. Um, if they come up with a, a good idea, I'd be the first to say, yeah, that's much better, let's do that. Um, but um, it's very annoying when people start to tell you what is and is not in the script. And you say, actually, yes, it is. If you look at page 46, it's there. Look at it. Did you not read it properly? Um, Someone saying, oh, this was not the end of the script. I said, there it was. It's always been there. Look at the bottom part of the script. Look at it. What does it say? And then they all go red and uh, it all goes quiet. Well, there's a quote in, in last week's Guardian Guide where it says, um, of time in the city, where it says, um, Britain's most neglected director is, is in danger of being overexposed. I mean, it was said with some tenderness. But I mean, do you feel like that at the moment? Well, um, perhaps, perhaps it, I have been overexposed. I honestly don't know. I never thought it would have this kind of reaction. No, I didn't. Because um, as I said to you before, I mean, I've been on the road since April. So it's been a long, a long haul. But obviously I'm very glad that people want to see it and are saying good things about it. But the, the next film might be a complete failure. You don't know, you know. There's no guarantee of anything. I'm just interested to know which films and which directors inspire you and also that you which films you enjoy watching are there any contemporary films who do you feel are your peers at the moment well as far as influences are concerned they're more general they're not a specific director you know i grew up um with the musical because my my sisters loved musicals so i saw musicals and they were only ever made in america you know um and british comedy of the period um, so it was those those kinds of influences, the, the influences of listening to music, um, which is indirect, um, the, uh, the discovery of poetry, which again is indirect. Um, but I like you know, about four films of Bergman. I like about four of Alfred Hitchcock. I love Night of the Hunter, which is the only film that um, Charles Lord never directed. Um, 
things like that. Um, I don't go anymore to the cinema. I've lost my ability to disbelieve. Um, I just can't do it anymore. Um, I'm conscious of the acting. I'm conscious of you know sin cinema syntax being used incorrectly because television really has absolutely demeaned cinema um, syntax and grammar. Tracks for no reason at all. Cranes for no reason at all. I, I just think, why are they doing it? Do they know the function of a track? You know, when I was starting off, um, but it was very rigorous. If you used any kind of movement of the camera, the tutors would say, do you know what it means? Why are you using it? Now people just do it all the time because it, it looks nice. Well, that's not the reason you move a camera. It isn't. Um, I get really angry about that. Um, I get really tedious. It's, if they're violent, I can't go and see them. I had enough violence in my childhood. I don't want to see it as entertainment. If they swear, I get bored. Um, and a lot of the time, do I care about what's happening on the screen? Not a lot. We're doing this podcast for the Northern Film Network, which is a network for filmmakers in the region. So I'd, I'd love to know from you, from your experiences, which is quite unique, what, what, what advice do you give to filmmakers, to people who want to be filmmakers, on, or, or, you know, or, or write scripts or, or whatever? What's your advice? In two parts, really. I'd say don't do it. Do something else. Um, become an accountant or a lawyer. If you're going to do it, you've got to be really sure you, you want to do it. You've really got to be sure. Because when you're young, you know, you can put up with not having any money and all that. And when you start to hit 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and you've got no money and you're in debt and you may even have to sign on, not glamorous that at all. Um, and if you have a partner and you have children, inevitably you're going to be faced with an important question, you know, how are you going to feed those children? They didn't ask to be born. And then do you say, well, I, well, I, I will do some telly, but really it's only because I, that will give me a chance to do something better. And that never works. It never has worked. It never will work. Um, the worst times are when you can't get work. You're on your own, in your flat, thinking this was a big mistake. You have got to be really sure that you want to do it. Otherwise, don't even start. You'll be heartbroken, you know, in the long term. What are the best times? The best times is when people like what you do. And I don't mean making vast amounts of money. If that's what you want, then you, do, you make a, a, a specific sort of film. I don't do that. I need money like everybody else. But I don't do it for that reason. It's not my raison d'etre. The best times are the people whom you respect saying that they like it. Um, or someone who's only ordinary. I remember the first, we, we showed Distant Voices Still Lives, which was my first feature at the Odeon for my family, because they couldn't afford to come down to London and I couldn't afford to pay for them. And we showed it one Sunday morning. And two cleaners had just finished cleaning the cinema. And they stopped and watched it. And one of them said, that was really true to life. That was a wonderful, wonderful compliment from two ordinary cleaners. That, that's very, 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 very heartwarming, and it does renew your spirit. Many thanks to Terence Davies. You can download the other podcasts in this series from the NFN website. This podcast was produced for the Northern Film Network by Little Star. <laughs>